Let's see. Hey, I want to welcome everyone back to the Parlay Podcast with comedian Kevin Wolf. I'm your host, comedian Kevin Wolf. Uh, today, we have a great opportunity to sit down with uh, Jimmy Quanders, uh, attorney, uh, wonderful guy. He's from, Jimmy's from the D.C. area, born and raised there, uh, uh, went to Wake Forest, uh, comes from a great family, played uh, football at Wake, got his undergraduate and went to law school at Wake. And now he is uh, partnering with Stacy Rubain. They have Quander and Rubain, PA. Uh, they're running their own thing. And he is also uh, one of the founding partners and, uh, and an agent at Reset Sports, uh, sports agency. So, ladies and gentlemen, just want to introduce Mr. James Quander. Thank you, Kevin. Appreciate being on your show, man. This is a good opportunity, and I like what you're doing, man. Man, appreciate that, man. This is... It's been great, you know, having to meet uh, so many wonderful people and getting to uh, share their insight on things and, and, you know, have a platform that I can, you know, introduce different people that I think are really dope to uh, a lot of listeners and fans out there. Uh, thank you for taking the time out. So just want to jump into it, man. If you could just, you know, let's kind of go from the beginning. So we know you're from D.C. So tell us a little bit more about that growing up in D.C. and, and where you're from. Well, first off, man, I work hard on trying to be dope. So I appreciate the intro, man, and I appreciate the selectiveness of it. I, I saw your show with uh, Big Fred Robbins uh, over the weekend, man, and I was blown back by the conversation, man. So it's a pleasure to be here. But, um, yeah, I, I, I grew up, I was born in the D.C. area, Montgomery County, uh, Maryland, and then moved to California, was in uh, Southern California for elementary school years, and then moved back to the D.C. metro area on the Virginia side and uh, went to actually two high schools up there. I went to one high school um, that I won't name and then I went to high school that I loved to death that gave me my start and direction in getting into uh, college and being recruited, which was the Tomek High School where we won the uh, 1990 Virginia 5A, uh, uh, 5, 3A uh, Division 5 state champion, Division 6 state championship. So we were the biggest um, division in the state of Virginia. We finished the nation ranked um, about 14 in the country in the USA Today, and you know the rest is history from there. Uh, got a, uh, I got to West Potomac uh, in not so much of a, a conventional way. I actually got in a little bit of trouble um, at at my former high school, and it turned out to be probably the worst situation of my life um, within quick period and eventually it turned into the best thing that ever happened to me and, and I got embraced by the West Potomac community and so you know I always got a major love for West Potomac and everything that they do as Wolverine as a former Wolverine. That's great man so what so um, tell me about your family man um, I know you come from a, a, a very strong family that has some experience in law enforcement and that kind of influence you going into law, but kind of talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so so one, one cool thing is that when I transferred to West Potomac, West Potomac is actually located on Quanda Road, which is uh, a cross section of a major <coughs> street in Alexandria. And uh, that portion of land, initially it started out as you know, several hundred acres that was um, given to my family, the Quanders who were uh, freed slaves uh, of uh, 
of, of George Washington back in the late 1600s. So from a family standpoint, um, as I know the history uh, that's been well documented by, by uh, my cousin up in the DC area, we were you know, really an early family uh, in Virginia that were uh, freed in, like I said, in, the, in really in the 1600s. And so with all that land, uh, ultimately my ancestors raised families there and eventually the land as, it, as time passed on um, was partitioned and sold and bought by the county. And, and so uh, my high school sits right on Quander Road. Uh, a wing of the school was Quander Hall. And I like to tell people that um, my brother and I brought West Potomac uh, as Quanders their first state championship in, in football. <laughs> Um, but, you know, intimately, you know, I come from, you know, you know good folks, man. My dad uh, passed away in 2005. He was a career uh, DEA agent. Uh, he worked Baltimore, D.C., uh, and L.A. Um, mm-hmm. And my mom is uh, retired from um, computer IT world, uh, retired a couple years ago. Um, so I've, you know, been blessed with, you know, folks that came from education and value education and that was something that um, was pretty much instilled in us at an early, early age that we were going to go to somebody's college. And for me, you know, sports was, you know, my ticket there, not not because I didn't have the academic background. I think um, it was something I enjoyed. And in fact, my, you know, whole network of friends that have been friends since, you know, really middle school, um, connected with a lot of friends I had back in elementary school, the common link between all of us was always some sports, whether we played together, played against each other, uh, played on the playground at the recs, uh, sports was a big deal. So it was almost like, you know, growing up in the Alexandria area, um, you know, the competition in seventh and eighth and ninth grade was who was going to get the first scholarship offer. And, you know, fortunately for me, when I made the transition from one high school to the next, um, I went from being recruited by small D3 schools to instantly without playing a game, getting recruited by uh, Power Five schools. And ultimately, I felt like Wake Forest was the best place for me, um, mainly from an academic standpoint. That's great, man. Uh, so during that time, what made you decide that, you know, Wake Forest is going to be the place, considering um, your family's rich tradition in the Virginia, D.C. area? Uh, why did you, you know, leave that area, that sort of that that nest where you guys had that established tradition uh, and that strong presence in that area? What made you, what was it about um, Wake Forest that made you find it so appealing that you were willing to leave that area? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, back then, you know, I, I finished uh, high school four years after Lynn Bias uh, died in Maryland. Um, Maryland would have been an option, but they were pretty much one breath away from being under death penalty after Lynn Bias' death and the subsequent academic mm-hmm. scandals. And so that wasn't an option. And for me, you know, I've grown up an ACC and a Big East guy. I mean, at that point, you know, Maryland was the closest school, maybe UVA. Um, and then, of course, I'm a big-time Georgetown basketball fan, but the football program uh, just wasn't quite where I thought I – you know, would, would have the most football or athletic success. So it made it pretty much easy to slide away from the D.C. area. I mean, you know, the options were limited. And, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately, you know, I was an ACC guy growing up. 
Um, I felt like, you know, it was important for me to be able to play on TV. I remember Raycom Sports back before it became IS, <coughs> ISG or, you know, Ben Sutton's thing. And, um, and I just remember seeing the games of the week, and I felt like, you know, at a minimum, I want to get that experience out of playing college ball. So uh, Wake was the first school to really offer me. Um, and, you know, every school that I got offered by was a high-ranking academic school. Um, I had offers at Duke. had offers from uh, Vanderbilt, uh, Rutgers, and, um, you know, a couple other schools that were Power Five, and they were the academic institutions, right? And so um, it was easy to settle on, you know, schools because it was, they, they all were fine academic places and they were schools that I couldn't have gotten into academically myself. So that narrowed it a little bit, um, narrowed it down to those top, top flight academic schools. I chose Wake uh, mainly because on my visit, I thought I was going to have a chance to play defensive back. Um, I was going to be the first 270 pound <laughs> safety in college athletics. Um, and, you know, Coach Bob Pruitt was a DB coach at the time, and he, you know, he gave it to me, man, had a good conversation with him. John Henry Mills was my host, and, and, and I committed because I felt like he was going to give me a chance to, to be, you know, a 210-pound DB. Yeah. And um, soon after I committed and signed, Coach Pruitt took the Marshall head coaching job, and so I was kind of left, you know, to fit for myself. But, you know, I felt like Wake was my place because of the academics and I thought I could play pretty early and play off the year. So I want to fast forward a little bit to um, the end of your career at Wake. Um, you're trying to figure out what's next, as, as many uh, college graduates do. Uh, how did you end up picking uh, law as what made you decide law school? You know, I, I get that question a ton, man, and and I and I've you know been fairly consistent and have mastered almost the story. But you know, th believe it or not, you know the incident that I told you about a little earlier, man, you know, was my first run in where I had to actually have a lawyer. And I remember going mm -hmm. to Alexandria, my mom and I sat down with this guy, and she was doing most of the talking, and I and I was just sitting there, kind of looking around, like. You know, I think I could do this. I mean, I, you know, I kind of, I think this mm -hmm. is a dope thing, you know, where this man is going to help me out. Um, there's some legal things. And at the point, you know, at that point, I didn't really have an appreciation for, you know, all of what was going on. And so the, the seed was kind of planted right then. And then when I was at Wake, um, it, it really turned into a process of elimination. You know, I was going into my last year. I was thinking like that summer, you know, maybe the spring before um, the beginning of my last year at Wake, you know, what do I want to do? You know, and I was a politics major and I was like, well, you know, maybe I'll go to you know, grad school, but not really for politics. What would I go to grad school for? I'm not ready to go into the working world. Didn't really know what my plight was at that point. And I was literally like, man, F it, I'm going to shoot. And, you know, and here's what's funny is that, you know, I remember having a conversation with my mom. She and I were talking about this about three weeks ago. And I, and I told her, I said, I got, I got it all mapped out. I'm going to come home. I'm going to be a D.C. police officer. Maybe one day I'll jump into being an FBI agent or something. And she, she was, like, doing the dishes or something like that. She was like, man, you know, you know officer, man, go, go to law school. Carry your ass to law school. <laughs> so, 
you know, that that thought, that was kind of like seed number two. And then, you know, when it came to that last semester, um, you know, process of elimination, I knew what I didn't want to do. And then I just said, you know, I'm going to take a chance on myself. And if I'm going to, you know, get the extra education, I'm going to do it and, and go for what I really want to do and not for something that, you know, was, uh, you know, somebody convinced me to go do a grad program somewhere else, you know. That's great. And so you're in law school and you're trying to decide a uh, specialized area. What made you want to go into being a, a criminal defense attorney? So, you know, wait, I went to wait, you know, and, and uh, you know, I got to give credit where credit's due. You know, Jim Caldwell, who we both played for, mm-hmm. um, Coach Caldwell, first thing he did was he let me miss a good portion of like, like that Wednesday practice. And you know what happened on Wednesday. Oh, wow. Middle drill, perimeter drill, all that clacking. And so he let me miss a good portion of the practice, not the physical part, the the conditioning part at the end. (laughs) I left early when I go take this um, uh, LSAT prep class, right? So, um, you know, got into law school with Coach Caldwell writing me a good recommendation. Charlie Davis is awake basketball yeah. legend and then I had a professor in the uh, politics department that I enjoyed and I just can't remember his name to save my life but they wrote me good letters um uh the, the academic advisor for football at the time was a guy named Marvin Mitchell Big Marv Big Marv yeah there when you were there and so I remember going out <laughs> to practice you know like that spring after I took the LSAT and I had bombed it man and I was and damn near in tears and I said, Mom, I don't know what I'm going to do, man. And so Marv called up to the law school, spoke to Melanie Nutt. She was like, you know, tell him to walk his application up here. And then, you know, the rest is kind of history. But, you know, law, law school at Wake was not about creating a, a focus, right? So you didn't declare a major or declare a focus. You took, you know, your core classes as a 1L or a first year, and then you just found your way. And so for me, you know, again, process of elimination. I mean, I worked at a big firm in Greensboro, the first summer out of school, um, did a clerkship there. Uh, loved the firm. I'm still friends with a whole lot of people that I met that summer, um, but it just wasn't my environment, you know, for a number of reasons. I mean, I, you know, I was the only black person in the law firm, you know, that was, you know, not an admin uh, or not the janitor, unfortunately. Um, and I was just there as a first year summer associate, you know, and I had a professor who, who told me who had worked at that firm and was like, yeah, this is the most progressive firm in North Carolina. So coming out of that experience, I was like, if this is the most progressive firm in North Carolina, I don't want to work at a big law firm. And then the second year I had the uh, fortune of working for the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. And basically I was there prosecuting, uh, assisting the prosecution of violent criminals and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the courtroom atmosphere. Um, I enjoyed the interaction between the judge and the lawyers and what, you know, what a trial reminded me of was game day. And so when I got back uh, to wait for my third year, going into my third year, I knew I kind of wanted to lean towards the criminal side, but I just, um, I think I was partial to to the plight of the underdog and wanted to do defense work. So when I finished uh, law school, I had a, very few job offers. I, I interviewed at our district attorney's office here in Forsyth. Um, you know, 
thought I had a great interview, sounded like I had a great interview, but the, the focus was how you gonna pay back your student loans <laughs> making twenty three thousand yeah. dollars a year. That was a question he asked me. And yeah. you know, it, it, and it's and it's funny, I mean, to this day I think about it and you know, you know, we started out talking about my background by no stretch, you know, that I grew up was I born with a silver spoon in my mouth, but it was more shiny than than most, right? And so the mentality was here you got this black kid who's got these student loans. And you know, my answer was, was true. I mean, I got I got family that got that's got some resources that aren't gonna let me, you know, not pay them back, and this is not gonna be the reason why I can't accept your job. So um, didn't get the job. Went down to Charlotte. Probably was the most uh, real interview I've ever done in my life. Got the job on the spot, and then I had clerked at a place here uh, during uh, my third year of law school defense firm. And I came back and, you know, when I passed the bar, I told, uh, I told my, my boss, my eventual boss, said, hey, I got an offer down in Charlotte. And so he basically put money on the table and we rocked and rolled from there. Oh, man, oh, that's, that's a great, uh, great story there of how you um, got to where you are. So I want to shift gears uh, a minute and um, talk about what's going on in Minneapolis for a second and get your expertise uh, on a couple of things from a legal perspective. And so I remember when uh, a lot of people had questions about why is it taking, why is he, why the, uh, none of the cops arrested at that time? Why haven't they been arrested? Why did it take so long? Um, why did it take so long for not just the arrest, but also the type of the, the charges and then what type of charges that they were given. And I know it's sort of three separate things that I'm asking, but if you could sort of give us some legal insight as to, uh, again, the first part being, why did it take the time that it took to issue an arrest? Uh, and then explain sort of why they may have, why they were charged with what they were charged. Uh, and sort of what we should expect moving forward from a legal perspective of the direction of the case. As much as you can give, I know you're on the outside sort of looking in, but just if you can right. kind of give some per, some sort of legal perspective on what went on in that situation up to this point. So, you know, what, what I do, I'm a, I'm a board certified specialist in criminal defense work. So we we tried tons of cases. I've, I've had uh, well over 100 jury trials in my career. And we've done everything from murders on down to anything that you can think of. Murder cases are a little bit different. And, and there's a handful of other types of cases, sex offense cases that, you know, require um, police investigation, detective work, ultimately to do a couple things. Number one, to, to sure up and make sure you've got all the evidence before you charge uh, somebody to make sure you've got the right person. And then also to determine you know, what, what is this, right? What, you know, what is, is this really an assault? Um, is the cause of death something different other than the, the, the assault itself? Um, and, and so to me, there was nothing unusual about the, the delay in charging uh, the officer in, in, in Minnesota. Um, there was nothing unusual about the week or whatever it took um, from a legal standpoint. Now, you, you and I have talked about this at length, right? you know, the, the, the public, and if I take off my lawyer hat and I'm part of that public and part of that black community that says, you know, we, we want justice, 
um, we're looking at it, looking at, at this situation like a repeat of um, everything that we've seen on video, really since Rodney King. And mm -hmm. the expectation, I understand, is that things be done swiftly and quickly. Um, but in murder cases, it's a little bit different. And, and here, you, you have a death that was a non-shooting death. Um, it was death essentially, um, you know, by, by physical assault that led to the death. And so uh, once the autopsy is ordered up, what the prosecuting office wants to know is, all right, well, what, what do we have? What kind of death is this? Did, did, um, did, did Mr. Floyd die as a result of a knee directly to the back? Did he have a heart attack? Um, and the knee was really just an assault. And so they took their time in order to make sure that they had it, uh, ultimately had it right or had enough evidence to, to, to get probable cause to swear out a warrant for some kind of homicide related charge, whether third degree murder is what they charged initially, um, which most, most states don't have third degree murder um, and then some sort of manslaughter. Um, I think that, you know, after uh, he was charged and taken into custody, that was done, uh, number one, because the evidence at a minimum justified that third degree charge, uh, but it got him off the street. And it, and it certainly, um, you know, to, for the lack of a better term, placated those of us in our community that wanted to see some action. Uh, and then as we know, uh, a couple weeks later, 10 days later, it was upgraded to a second degree murder. And I think that that's because the autopsy had come in and there were two separate autopsies that have ruled the death a result of the approximate cause of the assault. Now that's interesting that you mentioned the autopsy and with your experience, um, what typically happens in cases where you have the, uh, you have differing opinions based, you have different results of autopsies, right? So with that, whose do you ultimately believe? Yeah. How, do, know, how does that get worked out? You know, I, and, and I've not had, I, I've not directly tried a case that dealt with, you know, where we had two different corners that were rendering different opinions, but, you know, ultimately it becomes a, a jury issue, right? So you've got, you know, one expert that's going to say this, and you've got the state's expert that's going to say that. And ultimately, you know, it, 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 in a murder case, um, that's, that's where reasonable doubt comes in. And, and if you can produce, as a defense attorney, if you can produce an expert witness that um, is it's just as credible uh, or more credible than the state's witness, uh, the state's expert witness, um, then that's, that's, you know, it lends itself to a reasonable doubt argument, which, you know, a jury all day, every day uh, should find if you've got two credible experts testifying uh, differently about the same thing, that the, the tie always goes to the criminal defendant, the criminal accused. And, and, I, and I misspoke. We, we had a case that was not necessarily, not a murder. It, it ultimately was a, a um, uh, neglect of an elderly abuse case that led in, led to death. And we did have conflicting um, coroner reports or uh, description cause of death and what different um, sores and, and, and body examination meant. But, you know, at the end of the day, that's reasonable doubt. Um, you know, in cases like this, in this case where 
you know, you've got uh, two coroners saying, at least saying that the cause of death is attributable to that officer who was charged. Uh, you know, you, you like to think uh, as, as um, you know, as somebody who sat here and, and was in college when Rodney King took place and, you know, and has been in a number of situations where officers were, were attempting to get physical or got physical, um, you know, you like to see justice done. As an attorney, you know, it is about, you know, what justice is and, and what a jury of 12 people say. And so there's an emotional side of me as a human being. And then there's, you know, a pragmatic attorney that, you know, is taking an, you know, an approach, you know, what would I do if I were defending this case? But, you know, ultimately, you know, it's going to be an issue for a jury uh, to disputing uh, experts or an issue for a jury. And, and ultimately, you know, their job is to review the evidence and make a, a decision based on um, evidence that fully satisfies or entirely convinces them of guilt. And, and that's the legal standard. Now, your uh, law firm is working to provide some help to those uh, that uh, are participating in protests. So what were some of the things that you guys had talked about? Uh, I don't want to mess it up. I don't, don't want to butcher it, but you guys are, are helping um, those that are getting arrested during the protest. Kind of explain what that is. You know, I was I was sitting there. I was watching CNN, and and I was, um, you know, I, I, I was uh, now, and and obviously there are two different aspects to this. And you and I have talked. Okay. Um, I, I I I was pleased and excited by the energy that young folks have had in putting together protests in March and of, of what this cause is now. You know, um, do I agree with looting and 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 nonviolent protests? I don't. I don't think that that's the ideal way to go about it. But you know, unfortunately, um, I think that uh, there there are a large number of folks in the black community that have essentially felt like they're at the end of all reasonable options and alternatives when this stuff continues to happen over and over again. So, you know, as I watched what was unfolding and, and looking at the protests that were going to come up here in Winston-Salem and in the Greensboro area, you know, I thought that the best way for, for me and for my firm to, um, to do its part is to say, you know, if you're arrested for a peaceful protest uh, and, you know, and I, and I didn't, make any distinction. I mean, you know, the assumption is it's peaceful protest. If you're arrested for peaceful protest, we're going to, you know, represent you pro bono. Um, and that was well received uh, by a lot of the public, well received by organizations that are all for uh, kind of what's going on and what the protests are about at this point in time. And so, um, although we haven't gotten any of those cases, we certainly have gotten a lot of traction within the community, uh, the legal community, uh, within the community that are that are putting together these protests uh, to say, hey, we support you in whatever you do uh, by way of helping out folks that are, you know, that get that happen to get charged for peaceful protests. And again, that hadn't happened here in Winston Salem. Um, I think they're a little bit more active over in Greensboro, but you know, here in Winston, uh, the the protests have been a 100% peaceful protests. Um, so. 
some of the solutions that are being tossed around, and there are a lot of solutions that are being tossed around that um, some, you know, a lot of people are getting behind, but one that seems to uh, be getting a lot of traction, uh, and I want to get your thoughts on it, is this uh, idea of defunding the police. Um, I've been trying to, you know, get a better grasp of what that means, but it seems as if, you know, if I ask, ask 10 people what defunding the police means to give me, you know, some more insight, I'm getting 10 different answers. And so I'm just trying to, I don't know if you've heard it, but is, is there some sort of concept that, you know, I can wrap my brain around of, you know, defunding the police? What does that look like? What does that mean? Have you been hearing about it? Yeah, it's like anything else. I think that, you know, there's certain, there are varying degrees. And if you talk to 10 people about what defunding means, you know, one extreme would be to not allocate as many resources. I'm, uh, I was reading an article this week where uh, I can't remember the jurisdiction, but what they have proposed is to, let's hear it once to Salem, eliminate or put a, a, a hiring freeze on 15 new positions and allocate those funds that would go towards the salary of those. 15 new police officers and allocate them into community resources. And then there's another extreme that would, you know, that, that is the most extreme to say, you know what, we don't, our, mun our municipality doesn't want police period. And, you know, we're not going, um, you know, we don't want government, local government, state government, county government to, to put any money into uh, the current police department and they can go out and either uh, gather private funds to operate or, um, uh, or, or they can turn themselves into a, a for-profit based policing company, but we want to have control over what the policies and procedures are within the police department as shareholders, so to speak, mm -hmm. in the county that they're seeking to defund. And so that would be, you know, an extreme example of it where, you know, essentially no money goes to police departments. Wow. That's, That'll be interesting to see um, how much of that with the with the varying degrees of meaning of defunding the police, like what part of that, um, you know, really, which one do people take to? Or does it sort of, for lack of a better term, you know, not make it out of committee, as they say in politics. Um, I want to shift gears for a second to talk about your uh, experience as an agent with as a uh, founder of uh, Reset Sports. And particularly, I want to ask you about the Drew Brees situation, as well as talk a little bit about uh, the NFL issuing their apology. Uh, but first, looking at the uh, Drew Brees situation, and as a player, as a former player, how did the how how do you think the locker room of the Saints are going to deal with Drew Brees and his comments? Yeah, you know, Drew Drew Brees has a has an uphill battle that I have not really heard articulate. I think I think folks recognize, and those of us who played, we played, you know, on a team that you know from an age standpoint we were very homogenous. Everybody was eighteen to twenty one. 22. The thing about the NFL now, and with Drew being one of the older guys in the NFL, you know, he, he's playing with cats that are 20 years old, and he's playing with players who, if you if you parallel that locker room to what's going on in society, he's playing with with 
people who are out here protesting and leading some of these marches and leading some of these uh, civil uh, rights, move, you know, the second wave of big civil rights movement. And it's going to be difficult for him uh, with regard to those players. Now, we and you and I both know that, you know, those guys are coming in uh, with, unless you were a first, second round draft pick, I mean, you're coming in with some of the least clout on that team, you know, but that at, at the end of the day, that's a different constituency that he's talking to that he's trying to win back over. Um, the guys who are older than uh, that group that have been in the league for a number of years may, some of them may have uh, a more conservative approach to how they look at it. They may decide to turn the other cheek for the sake of, uh, you know, the better good of, of the team and the program. I mean, he's put in a lot of work over the years. Um, and, and I think that, you know, to some extent he deserves, um, you know, something uh, to, towards his body of work that he's put in and what he's meant to the city of New Orleans. But it's going to be a tough uphill battle for him uh, based on that dynamic. And not to mention, you know, the, the, the league was completely polarized just two seasons ago. Um, yeah. And along these same exact lines, and, you know, when you look at the bigger narrative of, you know, what, what Drew Brees is talking about is what Donald Trump was talking about two years ago, um, it, it still is a completely different beast to me than um, what's going on right now with, with uh, protesting for, for civil rights, right? And, and you know, to me, I've, I, you know, I, I recognize the flag disrespect. You know, we, we all grew up you know, knowing that you, you know, it's a crime to burn the flag, you know, you can go to jail for that. It was, it, you know, it's certainly a crime to throw the flag on the, you weren't supposed to let the flag touch the ground. And, and I think that that's an affirmative disrespect to the flag. Um, I don't see quiet, peaceful protest during the national anthem as being disrespect to, to the flag. I think that it's an opportunity for somebody who's essentially going um, unnoticed and unheard uh, playing in the National Football League um, to draw a slight bit of attention for, you know, the minute and 20 seconds that the anthem is playing um, and, and then to be able to say, you know, when asked, hey, this is what this is about. You know, it's about the civil unrest. It's about police officers killing black folks. It's about, you know, the disproportionate uh, income levels. It's about, you know, all the things that um, that, that, you know, really this protest, rep, in my opinion, represents, and it's not an affirmative uh, defacement of, of the American flag. Um, may, maybe the intention of the players was to permanently deface it, and if that's what they chose to do, hey, I get it, I understand it, um, but at the end of the day, I think that the fact that the narrative is so focused on the flag, and, and we're still back to this thing with the flag again, and not focusing on what the purpose behind the protest is, is, is a little bit out of touch with, again, what this younger constituency NFL players, um, how they look at and view, view the world. You know, I just think that there's a major disconnect right now generationally between those 20s and even those 30s and certainly us 40s. So if Drew Brees were your client, these were reset sports and um, – he sends the tweet out. He doubles down on what he had already said in 
I think it was 2016 somewhere. And what would you decide? Like, what would you advise him on doing? I know you said it's an uphill battle, yeah. but what would be some of the first steps you would advise in this, in you know, this situation or a similar situation to yeah. a client with reset? Yeah, I think you, I think the first thing you do is you reach out to your all-pro, all-worldwide receiver, Michael Thomas, and and you have a straight-up uh, face-to-face Zoom call with him, and you all hash it out, and you listen to him, and you you know he he listened to you, but the main thing is about listening and understanding that perspective, and I think that that that's going to be the number one step that he's got to take in order to win back the trust of some of the teammates that beg to differ. Right is is uh, it's it's about at least exercising what the protest is about, which is to get somebody to listen. I think the most offensive part of the protest two years ago um, is the same thing that's offensive right now when you look at CNN or you look at Fox News or whatever you whatever you watch is the commentary coming from you know one side that that completely can't relate to get to dying by a police officers knee in, in their back, telling us that this is that we need to be focused on the manner of the protest and not listening to, you know, what it is that is outraging so many people, right? So I think that Drew, um, you know, that that's the first step is to talk to your to your, you know, your 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 lead dog um, in, in the locker room who, you know, clearly from some of his tweets and reactions uh, isn't too happy about it and take time to listen and breathe with what uh, the narrative is for some of these, uh, some of the African-Americans, some black players in the league. Um, that's the first step. The next step is, I think, to, to try to collectively gather yourself and sit down with the whole team or with a, a larger group of players and ultimately, uh, you know, the whole team and, 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 and express a sincere, you know, apology for, really not being completely in tune and in touch with what the issue is. Um, you know, and I think at the end of the day, it would have been that easy for him to not say anything, but, you know, hindsight is always 2020 uh, as an attorney and as an agent, you know, oftentimes we're left with a, a bag and you know what, you know, we got to make that turn into a, a bouquet of roses sometimes. So, you know, what I do for a living always is a clinic, is, is a clean up mess and try to redirect um, bad decision making, and I think that that's you know that's a start right there. And you got to be straight up and genuine. I think the key is you know ultimately as an agent uh, and Drew as a player, it's about him performing at a high level in his last year or last years of his contract. I mean of his of his time in the league, winning football games, and you got to be able to get back to that point so it doesn't uh, the statements don't poison you know what they're trying to do as a franchise. So in, in thinking of that uh, and going in that vein, um, I was thinking about the NFL and Roger Goodell issuing that apology on behalf of the NFL, other companies that are making statements, um, issuing apologies. First question, is there such thing as being too late to make things right? Is it too late? <laughs> is it too late for the NFL uh, and I'm not saying the the apology that Roger Goodell issued um, is all that they're going to do. I don't know, but is it too is it ever too late to recognize and to uh, 
to try to set things right? Uh, of course not, you know, and you gotta you gotta have the optimism of it because that's where we're at. I mean, we you know, we're, what what this protest is about and what it represents to me is, you know, how do we how how does society change to balance out um, ills done and 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 to and to balance um, treatment of of. of a class of people that are prominent in the United States, right? And um, and it's a, it's really a humanitarian issue. It's not just you know we we want reparations or or we want um, you know you know more job opportunities. It's all of that, right? It's 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 about you know being treated the correct way. And so at the end of the day, you know, there's never uh, it's too late and you know forget you and you know, we don't want you to apology or anything like that. You know, but it, you know the, what 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 the hope is is that a corporation, um, an entity like the NFL and all of its uh, corporate sponsors that follow suit, uh, that benefit from um, the product, which is seventy percent black uh, players. Uh, does the right thing, and, and 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 yeah, they should have been doing the right thing years ago. They should have done the right thing 50, 60 years ago. Um, but it's never too late, and you can't look at it from the from the pessimistic standpoint. You got to be optimistic that you know it's it's the change is going to be facilitated um, by those larger than than any individual, right? And so ultimately, um, economically. Uh, that that's the effect of uh, the uh, protests. It is, I think it shows people, it shows corporations and companies and businesses that on the heels of, you know, COVID, when, you know, you, you, your business has taken a hit to some extent, the last thing you want uh, is a boycott of your product or is your, your store shut down by people protesting. And that's got to bring some attention. That, I mean, that's what they understand is, is you know, money. Um, and ultimately, the NFL, again, is a magnet to a, a lot of other larger uh, companies and corporations that employ a lot of people uh, that certainly economically can make can take the right step to making uh, things right and better. And of course, nothing happens overnight. But the reality is that we're, you know, we're, we're 50 years late on um, the humanitarian effort that uh, Black people uh, be treated with dignity and be treated equally as uh, everyone else. You know, the other day I was having a conversation um, and they were talking about um, the responses that you're seeing, the response from Nike and the Jordan brand donating, I think it was a hundred million and some other companies that are willing to donate millions to different uh, civil rights groups and social activist group activism groups. And so while it's good to see, uh, for me, I'm more of a, the job is not done yet type situation. Um, giving the money is great. It's a good, you know, first step forward. Uh, but for me, you know, the job is not quite done yet. We still have some progress and, so I want to get your thoughts on something real quick. Uh, I know you got a tight schedule, but I want to get your thoughts on how do we keep this momentum going? Not so much that it looks like 
everyday sort of protest, but how do we keep that going, turn it into where we're now presenting an agenda and sort of a, a list of, you know, demands? How do we build that momentum to take that next step to say, okay, this is what we want. This is what we're looking for out of this. This is what all of this was for. You, you, you know, one of the first interviews I listened to was, was Killer Mike. And, you know, and, and he succinctly put it, I don't have the exact words, but it was something to the effect of organize, mobilize, you know, and, that, and that's, that's what has to happen. And, you know, ultimately, um, you know, it, it begs the question, I, you know, I think from a hierarchy standpoint, you know, non-peaceful um, protests it is not sustainable. Uh, for the that's a, that has a, a, a short, shortest duration, peaceful protest has a longer duration, but it is it sustainable every single day when folks have to go back to work and things of that nature. Um, but really, what happens is once you know, and, and it does. It's not when uh, peaceful protest ends, um, but sometime during that period of peaceful protest, there needs to be organize, organizing to get to phase two of what this is all about. And, and, and I think that if you talk to uh, the, the leaders and those folks that are putting together uh, these protests that are, that are uh, you know, on, on this issue and, and, and been on this issue for years now, um, you know, they'll tell you the same thing, that this is all fine and dandy to, to march and, and to protest and to, um, and to shout and to get the NFL to turn its opinion and, and turn it, you know, or do a 180 on uh, their position, uh, but ultimately to help uh, you know, us out and the people out, there has to be some agenda that ultimately is quantifiable, right? And, yeah. and that starts with, you know, what, what is it collectively that we want? What are, what are we talking about? What are we demanding? And I think that that's, that's being done. I think that, um, you know, certainly when you talk to the younger generation, um, they, they, they can lay out for you what it is that they're looking for out of this, um, this movement. And um, hopefully that, that'll spread and it'll build and it'll grow and the older generations uh, like myself can, can, can part with, impart wisdom, can um, show some leadership and some guidance, but also at the same time take a step back and let, you know, let, let folks do what they do but ultimately, we all have to come together and come up with a quantifiable agenda of what it is that, that we want and we want to see done. And I think that that's easy. I think that, you know, that's the easy part. Um, but we, you got to be able to put it in, in, in words and, and, and put it to paper, um, because at the end of the day, you know, you know rights and, 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 and equal protection and all those legal terms are, are, are super subjective. Right. How do we, mm -hmm. you know, objective that every person that looks at this term knows, you know, hey, I want to be able to make the same amount of money as the person in my same exact position. I want to not be um, targeted by uh, police tactics and police training and police procedure. I want to be able to, you know, do, um, uh, you know, what it is that I do without having to have fear that I'm, you know, 17, 18, 19 times more likely to be pulled over. Uh, and so things need to be quantified through collective organization and communication.
That's great. So before you get out of here, I do want to ask you, are you really, are you real familiar with the uh, police review board in Winston-Salem? You know, um, I did a lot of work back when I first started practicing about citizen, you know, involved the citizen review board. Mm -hmm. And then I know it kind of tapered off at some point in time. And I had, I've had very little contact with the police review board probably since, um, the, you know, the early 2000s. Um, but I know that uh, when I was involved in it, you know, for every, you, you know, it, it, there, there, were, there were tons of complaints that really kind of went on deaf ears and they ultimately were reviewed internally. And then once they were reviewed internally, if there was any meat on the bone, so to speak, they went to the citizen review board and, um, you know, the review board a lot of times uh, didn't substantiate what the complaint was. And, and the complaints would be anything from, um, you know, officer, I remember an officer kicking somebody's basketball on the top of Lowe's, you know, shopping <laughs> at grocery store uh, and talking sternly to a cat to, to, you know, to more serious allegations. Okay. Yeah, I was just uh, wondering about that because people are, again, there, there are a lot of solutions floating around. Uh, review boards are one of those things um, that people that are cities that don't have them, they're looking into it. Uh, so just wanted to get your thoughts on that. So uh, before you go, kind of share with, you know, some of the things you may be working on now, some of the things you're into. Uh, really just talk about you know, your work as an agent, um, I saw where in 2016, you, you won this very uh, prestigious award. Uh, let's see, that's the Harvey uh, Lupton Award. Harvey uh, Lupton Award. Harvey yeah. Lupton Award. Yeah. Uh, 2016. Uh, but just kind of, uh, you know, kind of talk about what you're doing now, because I got to have you back to give us a one-on-one -on -one on law enforcement interaction. So yeah, so you know, um, I, I, for 22 years, I've I've done the same exact thing. I, I started out uh, in 1998 with a small criminal, a small firm that represented people. We represented uh, criminally accused. We represented people in divorces. We did real estate closings, and my focus was on criminal work. And I've been fortunate enough in my career to make a living without having to pick. And, and, and basically uh, take anything and everything that came in the door. Um, and I've been able to focus on uh, my work and being uh, essentially an expert in what I do. Uh, with that is, uh, I always felt like, you know, how much of a criminal defense attorney are you if, if ultimately you don't have any leverage? Uh, and the leverage that we have certainly is thoroughly preparing cases taking cases in front of a jury of 12 people. Um, you'd be surprised at the number of criminal defense attorneys who, like the most of the general population, are, are afraid to speak in public, but they're criminal lawyers. You know, how many trials have you had? I had had a trial in, in eight years. I mean, you know, and so <laughs> Stacy and I made a decision, you know, back in 2005 when we created Quanda Rebane that we were going to go hard and we were going to go hard for our clients. So we were going to put the pressure on the state. We were going to put the pressure on the federal government to uh, do what's right in the context of those criminal prosecutions. Um, and if we didn't get the result that we were looking for, we always 
uh, have the ability to try cases. But with that, you got to be able to try cases. And you got to be able to uh, know what that environment is. You got to be able to sit there and, and have that evidence coming out uh, slow to you like a professional baseball player, you know, uh, slower than it's coming out to the district attorney or the federal or the U.S. attorney. And so we've done an excellent job. I think that we're really proud of as a firm of mastering that, of uh, you know, every chance we get taking seminars that are related to uh, actual trial work, uh, you know, minute issues to big issues, um, to, to how to pick a jury, how to cross-examine witnesses. And that's been our bread and butter um, for you know, the last 15 years. Um, 2018 rolled around and uh, I started to reconnect with some of my teammates, and which is always a great thing and we need to do more of it. Um, and we uh, started doing these semi-annual trips and we just started shooting uh, around different ideas of businesses that we could uh, create and start and work with. And um, the thing that just kept coming up over and over again between everybody was getting back somehow into the sports and into the entertainment industry. Um, and so I volunteered to go back and take the NFL PA exam, which I had previously done back in 05 um, and then got out of it and jump into this with a different attitude and a different perspective. So what we spent last year doing, got certified at the you know, fall of 19, we, we instead of jumping in and trying to grab any and every player and, and putting and, and put forward resources that, you, you, you know, that were kind of hit or miss, we decided to go back in, do it right, reconnect with all of the contacts that I had um, previously and all the guys that I played with and knew of or had some connection with throughout the NFL, throughout college football, uh, so that we could go at the 21 draft, um, you know, in the driver's seat of, you know, what we're focusing on and what we're doing. And along the way, you know, we've been building and kind of branding who we are as Reset Sports uh, to reflect who we are as individuals. Um, you know, I think we, we're unique in that we've got four former football players that played Division One football, uh, one played in the NFL for about 10 seasons, um, got a lawyer, got real estate. We got a lot of different ends covered in it. But the main thing is, you know, how do we prepare clients to be successful in the NFL and beyond the NFL? And that's, and that's a simple formula that it seems like agents somehow have a hard time executing. Um, so, you know, it's about getting back in and getting connected with, uh, it, you know, folks that put on a football helmet and shoulder pads every day. But what I do for a living is represent people in the toughest of situations and, and, you know, to be a first round draft pick or a second round pick or a fifth round pick um, and being able to realize your dream um, is, is a tough situation, but certainly not as tough as someone who may be losing a good, good aspect of their life and their dream um, because the federal government is accusing them of a crime. And so although, they sound like two completely indistinct uh, areas. Uh, the skill sets are the same. At the end of the day, it's about caring for your people uh, like their family. Uh, real quick, I want to ask you, um, as it pertains to reset, one of the things I know in our conversations you want to focus on is not just getting the next contract or the next endorsement deal for your clients, but also mentoring them through this process of not just the NFL, but life in general. Um, how do you find that a lot of athletes coming out of college 
um, that have a roadmap to professional sports, do you find that they are receptive to the mentorship or has it been just, hey, I want to get to the next contract. Give me the most money and I'll figure it out after that. What, is, what, are, what are you seeing from the next generation of, of, of professional athletes in terms of being open to mentorship? Yeah, I think, I think that the next generation and this generation is like our generation. You know, I mean, it's, it's you know, I'm still uh, at wake a lot and still kind of know what goes on within um, the athletic department and the university. And kids are the same as they were when we were kids. You know, I, I think it's easy to sit back and look at culturally and say things are way different, but they're really not. Um, you know, the, the amount of information that's out there uh, sometimes it's so overwhelming that it's almost like when we were playing, there was a lack of information. Mm. Um, and so, you know, they, they, they're, you know, caught in between, you know, too much information, um, the humility of being, a, a, you know, an athlete and knowing you've got to perform and produce. Now, you know, the mentorship part of it, <clears throat> it it's not that e it's not as easy. And it's not because a, a, it's a new generation. It's about creating a relationship with somebody. It's got to, it's about creating trust and you know, let's be honest. I mean, the agent world, although, you know, the vast majority of agents are subscribing to the rules and regulations of the state, of individual universities, of the NFLPA, of the NCAA, <clears throat> there are folks who have made it uh, difficult to maneuver within this realm, right? Because they skate rules and, um, and bad things happen when they get caught. Um, and so it winds up looking ill uh, on, on the profession uh, when that happens. And so the trust issue becomes one where, you know, college coaches don't trust agents and, you know, and, and certainly the compliance directors don't trust agents as much and that begins it. Um, and so the players are going to kind of follow suit with those around them that they see every day. And, and if the rhetoric is, is, you know, isn't, Hey man, you know, you need to go out here and find a great agent because you're going to be an early draft pick next year, which clearly mm -hmm. is not. And, and <laughs> when we played, I don't think, yeah. um, but you know, there, there's a distrust and, you know, some of the time parameters that the, the you know, where you can talk to guys and those rules, uh, I, I get it. And I understand the, the purpose of those rules and certainly mm -hmm. don't advocate breaking rules, um, but it creates, it, it makes it a little bit more difficult to create that mentorship that um, players need. There's no question about it. And so, you know, hopefully the trend in the future uh, is that the NCAA and institutions can see that there, there's a need for, for them to gather as much information in general for a really good player that you know is going to play on Sunday. Um, it's, it's important for them to gather very specific information about themselves. And, you know, everyone's got to trust that these these players, these student athletes can go with and do what they do, which is uh, get on the football field and go out there and, and do what you're, you know, you've, you've got to do to survive, right? And to not walk around, you know, pressing too much about trying to be perfect and, and execute whatever the game plan is. But, um, you know, the mentorship part of it, it, it it's, 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 it's really important. And I think it would help with, some, not necessarily all players, on how they view themselves walking into an NFL locker room, right? You know, draft mm -hmm. is, is, is kind of like signing day. You remember, 
you know, when you signed with Wake and you had your, you know, it might have been your position coach or whoever recruited you. And then remember when you put the pads on and went out there and that same guy that was in your house and talking to your mama and at your high school, you know, was getting into your, you know what, <laughs> on the field, it, it's the same way. You know, the draft yeah, day is yeah. all good. You shake the commissioner's hand, but when you got to get to work, you know, it's business, you know, and it, you, you got paid mm -hmm. a bunch of money to go out there and be productive. And you got to know, um, you know, the, they need to know, they need to have more information going into that to that arena and I think that that's what we uh, will continue to do an excellent job of. Man, that's great. Uh, Quandus, man, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. You got it right now. I'm going to put you on the spot. Are you going to commit to coming back on the podcast and doing sort of a, uh, a police engagement one-on-one? -on -one? Uh, sort of what are the questions that we can ask when we're pulled over? You know, what are the things that hey. such as, you know, you hear those things like bad, you know, name, badge number, or I want a supervisor and those sorts of things. What are some things that, that as a, a citizen, someone, when I get pulled over, um, what are some things that I can legally, you know, that they legally have to respond to? What are some interactions, you know, just how do we make those interactions uh, better without having to sacrifice our, our, our rights as citizens to have certain questions answered. So, well, you, you do got to <laughs> sacrifice some rights, but, but, you know, I, I've just recently done a, a little pamphlet for some of the nonviolent peaceful protesters that goes through it and anything that you need, man, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow suit and I would love to do it. Well, that sounds great, man. We're going to have you uh, come back on L oh, real quick. So uh, it is Quander and Rubain. Uh, PA here in Winston saying, what's the number where for those that may want to, uh, any services? We're at 336-725-6600. I was about to give out my cell number. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 336-725-6600. We've been in the same place for 15 years in Winston Tower, and we're, we're here and we, we represent people and we go hard for our folks. Appreciate the time, man. And again, we're going to have you back on. Uh, thanks for uh, checking out the Parlay Podcast with your host, comedian Kevin Wolf. Take care. Anytime, brother. Uh.